Good evening. Please turn with me for what I believe will be the last time to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the end of 1 Corinthians. My aim is to finish up tonight. I haven't quite yet settled on where we'll head next, likely to the Old Testament. If you have strong feelings about that, you've got a week or two to let me know before we embark on another journey through another book. But let's begin by reading this closing section from Paul one more time. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 5. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother... Apollos, I urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would again illumine the pages of Scripture. Keep back the blinders of sin which so often cloud our eyes and the distractions, the idols that bubble up in our hearts that keep us from hearing from your word. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you would mold us and make us as we ought to be. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we spent our time in this closing section of Paul's letter talking about the idea found at the end of verse 15, where Paul commends the example of Stephanus and his household. He says specifically of them that they were devoted to the service of the saints, devoted to it. They were committed. They could not be turned aside from it. They couldn't be distracted from it. They were, that's what they did. They were servants. It was habitual in the best sense of the word. We also noted that this devotion to serving the saints is not at all disconnected from devotion to the Lord. Paul mentions their conversion in the preceding phrase in verse 15. To be devoted to the service of the saints presumed or assumes that you are first devoted to God. You cannot have lasting and genuine devotion to the saints if you're not first devoted to the Lord. We could say if you don't have the vertical right, you'll never get the horizontal right. 
Love to God and love to neighbor flow from the same place. We mustn't ever pit those two things against one another or get imbalanced in our focus on one to the neglect of the other. This week I'd like to continue down that same road a bit and to see how this text, this section of verses on the faithful doing of the Lord's work will produce certain things in the hearts of God's people. Being devoted to the work of the Lord and to serving the saints will bear fruit. And the first of those fruit we can see in verse 18. Paul says, well, starting in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. That phrase, they refreshed my spirit. That's what I want to think about at the first part of this sermon. When someone's doing the work of the Lord, they're motivated by genuine love to God and love to neighbor, they're devoted to the service of the saints, they will tend to have a certain effect on the souls of the saints around them. They'll be refreshing. They'll they'll revive the spirit. We've all experienced that. We've been around certain saints that just seem to have a knack for making you feel great, feeling vibrant in soul. And conversely, we've all had dealings with people that seem to have the opposite effect, haven't we? People that seem to suck the life out of you, that are life-taking rather than life-giving. They, they drain you rather than fill you up. That kind of personality seems to only bring joy to a room when that said person leaves the room. We don't don't want to be like that, do we? We, None of us want to have that effect. We want to have the godly effect of refreshing the souls of the people around us. But what what does it mean to be a refresher of souls? What, What does that look like? Well, first, we can start with what it's not. To be a refresher of souls is not simply to have a particular kind of personality, It's not a particular personality type. Paul here is not commending the extroverts because they're all automatically refreshing. He's not talking to the people that are simply being bubbly or social. If you're naturally gifted in those ways, you might find it easier to talk to people, but that doesn't necessarily make you more refreshing to the people around you. In fact, without self-control and the use of a tongue, an outgoing person might have greater negative effect in terms of refreshing. To be refreshing isn't limited to a kind of personality or to natural gifting. And certainly, some people are better at it than others, but it doesn't exclude everybody. It doesn't exclude anybody from the possibility of being refreshing. Second, being a refresher of souls is not synonymous with being an optimist. It's not being really positive. Refreshment is not found in mere optimism. There are some people, just from the way that they're wired from the very beginning, seem to be persistently optimistic. Whatever problems are going on around them, they just seem to keep on moving, keep plugging along, keep pressing on. They're like uh, Dory in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Right? Their favorite phrase might just be, don't worry, be happy, or hakuna matata. They, 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 they even say, say encouraging things like, well, tomorrow will be a new day. Things are going to turn around. But, and there's something about that that seems right, but take note that bare optimism is not necessarily Christian. 
There are plenty of pagans who are very optimistic about the future, and they have no reason to be. An optimist with pure optimism and nothing else is just well-wishing. He's, he's making conjecture about what he hopes in the future, but he has nothing solid on which to base that optimism. He has no idea that tomorrow is going to be better than today. It may be worse. And so any kind of refreshing feeling that we might get from somebody that's merely an optimist, those feelings are fleeting because you're probably going to have another bad day. And the optimist has nothing more to offer you. They're just kind of sticking their head in the sand, hoping that things can't be this bad for too much longer. That's not hope. That's not Christian hope. Next, a a third thing that might seem refreshing at first, but actually doesn't prove to be, is flattery. Flattery. Flattery is when somebody says a lot of nice things to your face, but they they don't actually mean it. And flattery can feel very encouraging and refreshing for a time. It might be refreshing to your soul to hear all of this praise coming at you, all of this flattery, but in the end, flattery is actually destructive rather than restorative. Proverbs speaks in many ways about flattery, all of which are bad in the end. Flattery is described as a net that is set out in order to trap people. Flattery brings ruin, the text says, and it comes from a deceitful heart. So flattery might feel very refreshing. It may look on the surface a lot like just simple encouragement, but it leads to ruin and death, Proverbs says. So don't don't fall for the trap that flatterers are, are your best friends simply because they tell you nice things. They're not concerned with your with refreshing your soul. They're, they're actually doing the opposite. They're harming you. Fourth, a fourth thing that seems refreshing at first but actually isn't is gossip. Gossip. Proverbs 18.8 describes the effect of gossip in the soul. It says that the words of a gossip are like juicy morsels that go down into our inward parts. There's something about illicit knowledge that when it enters into our sinful ears... It's some kind of satisfying at a fleshly, ungodly level. And and when that gossip seeps in, it can feel exciting, invigorating, which mimics the feeling of refreshment in our soul. But we have to remember that that's not real refreshment. It's the kind of exciting that the foolish man in Proverbs felt as he's being enticed by Lady Folly into her bedroom right before he goes to the grave. That's the kind of excitement that gossip provokes within us. It lures us in. And only after it's too late do we realize that gossip is actually poison. It offered life and refreshment, but it's given us death. Gossip promises life, but it only brings decay in our bones. It However juicy it may be and however pleasing it might feel to the tongue and going down into the soul, it will never provide refreshment to your bones. Now those are things that might seem refreshing at first but actually fall short. There are all sorts of other things that we know are clearly not refreshing, that are in no way confused with refreshment. So here's a little mental exercise for you to do. Think about the people in your life who are 
the more difficult ones to love, the ones that struggle to refresh your soul? What kinds of things consistently mark those people? I've polled several people this week trying to see how my list, my question lines up with other people, and they were strikingly similar across the board. And the, the first is pride is universally repulsive. It's not refreshing, and that's not surprising. It's, it's impossible for a proud person to be refreshing to your soul because they like to talk about themselves too much. That's, that, that's the only one they're concerned about. They talk about what they've done and how they're doing, all the great things going on in their life. Even when they try to comfort you when you're going through something hard, they, they almost immediately fail at it because they have a story that they need to tell you about how they were victorious through a similar trial, how they're so wise. And such self-centered people are, are draining to the people around them. They struggle. They will struggle to refresh anyone. Second, people that are consistently cynical fail to refresh souls. People that are consistently cynical fail to refresh souls. This, this kind of person, they, they tend to describe themselves as, as a realist, right? I'm just going to shoot you straight. I call a spade a spade. Well, what they usually are doing is sinfully criticizing and being discouraging. They're, they tend to be perpetually negative. They, they can't acknowledge. It's hard for them to even acknowledge anything positive, anything that's hopeful. They seem perpetually disgruntled and dissatisfied, always irritated, always complaining. And they fixate on the problems, and they're not really concerned to hear about solutions. They just want to grumble about the problem. You see this in Israel over and over and over in the history of God's people. Sometimes you've met the political cynic. He's never known a politician he was unafraid to slander. Sometimes it's a professional church member cynic who's, who's never met a staff member or a church program that he wasn't afraid to critique, making sure not to lift a finger to help anything, just to critique. Those kinds of people are definitely not refreshing, but, but we should note the effect of those professional cynics. It's worth noting that these cynical people tend to gravitate together. Birds of a grumbling feather flock together. And they can actually feel among themselves kind of refreshment among themselves. Because the other people are complaining about the things that I want to complain about, and it provides confirmation that I'm right. It stirs them up. But what they've done is created a, a resonating echo chamber just confirming their own cynical observations. It feels to them very comforting and reassuring, maybe even encouraging for a time. But what they do is they produce a group that's destructive to themselves and to whatever's around them. That disposition promotes distrust and dissension, division, hostility. God hates that. He lists it in Proverbs as one of the things that he hates, one who divides the brothers, divides the people of God. And what it does is that anybody of any character can't stand to be around them, and it usually 
erodes the whole thing into nothing. Cynicism undermines lasting refreshment to the soul. Third, a third quality that isn't refreshing to your soul is something that I struggle to find an exact word for, but I think it's best described as a lack of peace. A lack of peace. Peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. And there's sometimes within us when we lack peace, we will struggle to be refreshing to the souls of the people around us. Rather than having a confident peace built upon the final work of the Lord, this person tends to be restless, always churning in soul. You could say that they're, they have an instability or, or maybe immaturity of soul. We see the opposite when we meet those that are very refreshing, don't we? They seem to have a stability of soul and a peace, a graciousness about them, a godly kind of resiliency. Whatever storm is going on around them, they're fixed on God the whole time. They've never once let their eye off of their Savior. And they have peace in the midst of life's storms. That's what a refresher is like. And so the opposite is somebody that's always tossed about just emotionally and spiritually in turmoil the whole time. They're, they're struggling. Sometimes this person is likely to be um, irritated or, or, or judgmental when somebody comes to them. You know, if you go to them and you want to confess your need or, your, or sin to them, they're irritated by you. They seem annoyed that you would bother them. And so what we do is we tend to be self-protective. We don't want to say too much around them lest we provoke them. We draw their judgmental barbs. It's not peace. Someone full of the peace of the Lord brings God's peace where they go with his message of peace. Sometimes... A lack of peace is demonstrated by having a short fuse flying off the handle. They're like a powder keg, ready to blow at all times. They're quick to judge, quick to anger. They're not peaceful. And if you act like that, it's no wonder that people don't feel refreshed around you because they're on guard. They're, they're, they're afraid of volatile instability. It's not refreshing. And so there's two short lists of unrefreshing things, kind of bare optimism, flattery, gossip, pride, cynicism, and a lack of peace. So what do we do when we find any of these things in ourselves? We find ourselves being less than refreshing. What do we do about it? Well, we, first thing we do is we realize that a lack of being refreshing is not merely a personality quirk. Oh, it's just the way that I am. It's not, it's not simply a missed opportunity either. It's a failure to love. That's what it is. And an absence of love in any measure is sin. Think back on those behaviors that I've listed, and you'll note that all of them are the opposite of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Love is patient, Paul says doesn't fly off the handle. It's long-suffering. Love is kind, Paul says. 
which means it's not judgmental. It's gentle. It's merciful. Love does not boast, which means it's not proud. It's not self-centered. It doesn't want to dominate the conversation. Love doesn't insist on its own way, nor is it irritable or easily provoked. Rather, it's stable, fixed on the good of others, rather than demanding it gets its way. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, which is to say it's certainly never cynical. It's never complaining. Love doesn't grumble and whine. Rather, love rejoices in the truth. That means it's unwilling to deal in falsehoods. It would never consider flattery a godly use of the tongue. Loving is what we are called to be. And when we're not refreshing to the souls of others, it's usually because we have failed to love them well. That makes us feel guilty. Because failing to love is ungodliness. It's unrighteous. It's sinful. And so we need to be forgiven. We need to be restored. But before we get to that, we should ask ourselves, why? Why do we so often fail to refresh others? Pastor John English hasn't said anything Anything revolutionary tonight? I know that I don't love people like I need to do. Why do I continue to fail in these ways? You see, we have selfishness within us that prevents us from being at peace ourselves. We have turbulence in our hearts that we're we're grasping for things that we want but that could never satisfy. We're seeking lasting satisfaction from things that were never meant to provide it. In short, we can't be refreshing. We can't be restful to the souls of people around us because our souls are not restful themselves. We haven't been restored. We haven't been refreshed. And this is where the good news of this passage comes in. You see, the language that Paul uses in this verse about refreshing Restoring, we could translate it. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. If you want to be a refresher of others, you need to be refreshed in Jesus first. He will give you a calmness, a peace, a restorative rest that will soothe your soul. We can never be restful and refreshing to others unless we have first been refreshed ourselves in Jesus Christ. Everything else will fall short. However encouraging we may try to be, we can never be a refresher of others unless we have first been refreshed in our own soul. And Jesus is the only one that can provide such a feeling of refreshment. Remember when he talked to the woman at the well in John 4? He said, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that he provides um, will never be thirsty again. He can satisfy the parched soul that we are all born with, that craves for satisfaction. This, the longing that we have for fulfillment and for pleasure, all found in him. You see, we, we seek significance in this life through power and prestige. We seek to dominate others or to gossip about them or to make them bow. We seek satisfaction through relationships and we're desperately worried about what other people think about us and so we flatter them and build them up lest they say something mean to us and crush our soul. We seek 
fulfillment through feelings of self-importance, and so we pridefully look down upon others rather than actually dealing with our own inadequacies. Whatever the, whatever the problem, the root is that we're seeking to be refreshed in all sorts of things that are not Jesus. We want to find rest in our souls through indulgement, through, through giving in to the appetites, through putting people in our lives or pushing people out of our lives, by dominating people. There's all sorts of things that we try and think will bring rest to our souls, and none of it will. Only Christ. Now we, are, we are called to find our rest in Jesus, which he frames very clearly as a necessity. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. If your soul is restless, your prescription is to go to Jesus. That means learn about him. Hear his message. Embrace it in your soul and plant it deep in your heart so that it can never be moved. Hold on to him and trust in him. Believe what he says. Don't do it just because some preacher said it. That's Jesus' words saying, come to me. He's calling to you. That's his offer and his invitation. And when you come to Jesus, you will find rest and refreshment from your, for your soul. Because the, the greatest sources of restlessness are all addressed in Jesus. Rest is an option because Christ takes the things that make you feel anxious and he handles them all. You worried about the future? Who you're going to marry? Where you're going to go to school? Or the, you got a doctor's appointment coming up, you're really worried about what he's going to say? Worried about your children leaving the home. You're worried about this, worried about that. Jesus provides rest for your soul because when you come to Christ, the God of the universe has promised to work all things for your good. Not, not to work all the things out, to work all of them out for your good. That means on the last day, you won't be able to look back at your life and all the bad things that happened to you from that perspective, you will say, no bad things happened to me when I came to God. Every single bad thing was for my good. Is your soul restless because you're, you feel guilty and dirty? Because you feel defiled because of something you've done in your past? And come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. He is the spotless lamb, the perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners. And the New Testament says that your relationship with God will be characterized as peace. God will not be angry with you. In fact, the, the Lord of the universe will slam his gavel down on the bench and he will say, righteous. Christ's righteousness is accredited to your account. So what, what feelings can have? What, what can your feelings say in light of God saying that you are clean? So clean that he adopts you. He brings you into his own house. He treats you with the same kind of love, the love that he has for his son. That's restful news. That will calm your anxious soul. Nothing, nothing you can do will make you more acceptable before God. Nothing will be lacking from your account. God is 
perfectly satisfied with Christ's offering in your place. And nothing can take that away. No future event is going to revoke God's judgment. He's not going to say, whoopsies, I got that wrong. You're actually condemned. He can't do that. He won't do that. No circumstance is going to shake Christ's standing. And that, that firmness of future can provide a stability and a peace of soul, a restfulness of soul in you today. Do you have that kind of peace? Doesn't it sound wonderful to have that kind of peacefulness in your soul? To have a restful soul? Have you been refreshed by Jesus who offers refreshment? And if not, then why would you wait? The problem of your soul has been presented and the, the only solution has been presented to you as well. So don't wait for another solution. A better one won't come. Don't neglect such an offer of salvation and peace because it could be yours today. Come to Jesus and trust in his promises and you will find rest for your soul. And for those of us who have experienced this rest, who are trusting in Jesus, but who find that we still need to grow in being refreshing to those around us, then we need to heed Christ's warning his invitation, rather, as well. Christ tells us to come to him and find rest for our soul. And this isn't a one-time offer that we just use at conversion and then we don't have to go back to Jesus anymore. Christ is continually beckoning us to come back to him and find rest and refreshment for our souls. Come to him and think about who he is and what he's done and his promises. Think about what's in his word. He is your contentment, your humility, your satisfaction, your pleasure, your fulfillment, your safety. And when your soul gets filled with that kind of spirit-refreshing truth, only then will we be ready to pour that kind of refreshment into others. We'll never be able to refresh others if we're not refreshed by Christ. We, we can't share what we haven't tasted ourselves. And so let us be diligent to stay close to Christ so that having first refreshed ourselves in his fountain, that we can then take that same refreshment and share it with others. Now moving on to a, a final point, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the manner in which this devotion to the saints will be expressed. If if the effect of the devotion that we have to service of the saints is that the saints' spirits are refreshed, the manner in which our devotion will be expressed is with godly affection. Godly affection ought to mark our doing of the Lord's work. We see examples of Paul's godly affection throughout this letter, but especially in this closing chapter. Verse 19 he lists several groups who send their greetings, Aquila and Prisca. We can read about them in Acts 18. They are um, hosting a church in their home, which Paul mentions also in Romans 16. They, along with their church, send greetings. All the brothers send greetings, Paul says in verse 20. They're not indifferent to the work of God being done in other places. They're eager to hear of the work, to send encouragement, to send 
greetings, not like some kind of trivial politeness or social expectation. They're, they're fellow laborers, and it's encouraging to laborers to see brothers and sisters around them succeeding faithfully in the work of the Lord. They're united by the work and by shared affection. And Paul even commends at the end of verse 20 the showing of Christian affection. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And Paul's not commending something illicit here. Nothing unusual about what he's doing. The kiss, usually done twice, once on each cheek, was a standard greeting for both men and women at the time, much like it is in parts of Europe, in France, Italy. It was a standard social convention. It's not too dissimilar from our shaking of hands or giving a hug. The point that Paul was making was, it was less about the exact physical expression of the affection, but more the heart behind it. What makes the holy kiss holy is not the kiss, but the holy one giving it. That's what's important. There's a, there's a necessarily physical expression of physical affection, which is appropriate. And its significance is often seen even more sharply when it is removed. If you were to come in and a man were to rudely refuse to shake your hand, you'd likely be offended, and rightfully so. The expression of affection is significant, and so Paul encourages them to express their affection. And we should reflect here for a moment to make sure we're doing a good job at this. Are we warmly greeting others, both we know, those that we know and those that we don't know, when we gather together? Am I hospitable in my disposition, or am I cold and aloof? Some of us are better at this than others, but I think we can all grow in this area. Further, I think it's worth reflecting upon this verse and the expression of affection that Paul is commending and seeing how such an expectation could never be met by occasional church fellowship. If you're never or if you're rarely among the body, you lack the opportunity to express godly affection. Indeed, not only can you not show affection in a physical way, you're actually communicating the opposite. Because if my fellowship with you is so unimportant to me that I won't bother gathering with the body of Christ to worship, what does that communicate about my love, about my affection towards you? It communicates a lack of it, a lack of affection. You're not important enough for me to bother with coming to worship. That's what's communicated by people who willfully choose to avoid gathering with the body of Christ. I'm so glad that Christ did not act that way. He walked among his people. He showed his affection with his actions and his words. He gave up his, his whole life in order that people might see his affection towards them. So let us not forget to show our affection towards one another in godly ways. Refresh your soul in Christ and then refresh others with godly affection. And tonight we will close with a significant reminder of bodily affection. Christ offers a picture of his body and his blood at the Lord's table, an ongoing reminder of his affection, his love towards his bride. But he doesn't merely offer us a holy kiss. He offers up his own body 
so that through his experience of punishment, we might experience peace in our souls. Through his anguish of spirit, we might be refreshed in spirit. And so if you're like the saints of Acts 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the Lord's table. After I pray, we'll make our way to the center aisle and then come up and receive the elements, returning to your seats around the side. We'll also have someone walking around serving the elements to those who are unable to come to the table. We'll, we'll hold the elements and we'll all partake together at the very end. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Father, we thank you for Christ who is the only one who can refresh our souls. We pray that this time, the table, these elements will be set apart in a holy way that will refresh us. That by faith we will remember the good news that Christ has died in the place of sinners. Build us up, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.